very special podcast series from Cornerstone Advisors. Just as MTV went unplugged in the 90s, we decided to reverse course here and go a little gonzo banker style and plug it up and turn up the volume on opinions and ideas specific to the financial sector. I'm checking in from our DC studios while my co-host Steve Williams holds it down in Cornerstone's Scottsdale, Arizona headquarters. Now, we're joined by someone who is known for having an opinion or two or three. Steve, that's right. This is Tom Brown. That's right. We are lucky to have the man, the myth, the legend uh, of Second Curve Capital, Bankstocks.com, one of the most popular newsletters in the industry. And, you know, Al, he's got a history of speaking the truth. Uh, I remember watching him on 60 Minutes. I remember uh, a little prodding of Ken Lewis and and, uh, Hugh McCall over the years, but recently we saw him getting along just fine with Brian Moynihan of B of A these days. So maybe has he softened? We don't know. We're going to find out. But Tom, great to have you, buddy. Nice to be with you guys. So we want to ask you a few questions about what's going on out there. What's keeping you busy uh, at this moment? What are you uh, working on that's interesting? Yeah, I have a, you know, probably a CEO discussion every day. Discussion always starts with the economy as it is today and the economy looking forward. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just uh, amazing. I don't remember a time when it's been so, the, the two have been so different. Yeah. Right. So uh, the economy that most of the mid-sized regional banks are experiencing is is pretty good. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's kick it off, Al. Yeah. We got to drum up this conversation because we know that Tom's got some opinions. And, you know, as we do for each of our plugged in episodes, Steve and I went and put on our headphones to develop a five-track playlist for this conversation. <laughs> Tom, we have everyone from Queen to Alice Cooper to Cindy Lauper as inspiration. And you don't have to worry. We're not going to try to serenade you with each artist's song. Okay. But we I hope that I can get a laugh out of you when I say we drew some early inspiration from Miley Cyrus <laughs> in her hit song Wrecking Ball uh-huh. to get this thing going. So I'm going to dare you to channel your inner Miley and come in hot and talk about all these reductions in force that you're seeing in the fintech world. You know, talk about these layoffs, what, you know, Twitter, Meta, everyone seems to be doing in terms of talent. Folks invested big time a few years ago. They seem to be pulling back. What are you seeing in terms of talent across the financial sector today? Well, you know, you have your, the fintechs that are still privately held. Mm -hmm. And they were operating with a different model, which is let's try to do a land grab as fast as we can. We're going to get all this capital from these uh, venture capitalists, and we're just going to spend and not worry about making a profit. Well, that that game changed earlier this year. Now the uh, the VCs are telling them, you got to develop a pathway to profitability. And for many of them, that means that they have to reduce their expansion efforts or reduce their headcount. In terms of the publicly traded tech companies, it's about time they got their day of reckoning. They had a bull market for the last uh, seven years uh, relative to the rest of the market. And... Uh, but, you know, in Twitter's case, you got a very specific change of direction by a new uh, CEO, new owner. And in Meta's case, you got a very high profile failure, which was a big bet on the, the metaverse. Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, but the rest of the tech companies, I think, are just going through a typical downsizing before a recession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were together in Chicago. We were listening to Nigel Morris. Steve and I were trading some notes. What really stood out from some of his remarks around the fintech space and what's taking taking place is in 2021, the narrative was, don't worry about financing deficits. The cash will be there for you. We know that's not the case anymore. We also, you know, kind of learned that a lot of lending businesses just masqueraded as SaaS businesses for their valuations. 
So when you're talking about public fintech stocks, I think it's important to note, you know, they're down anywhere from 75 to 80 percent of their value. Um, and it's indiscriminate carnage, I think, was the words that that Nigel used. So when I think of what's changed, you know, fintech founders in particular today are, are thinking about how do I preserve capital? How do I get leaner faster? How do I pull back on my marketing spend? You know, how do I get to cash flow positive? And really that reduction in force can be anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of an organization, which is shocking when you think of what that does for culture. You know, Steve, you've heard me talk about culture. Do you have a song that might tie into this? That you well, could I picture like, uh, I picture culture and I picture a Clemson football game on a Saturday afternoon. And I picture, buddy, you're a boy, you're a big boy. Playing in the street's going to be a big man someday. And Tom, we recently got to see um, Jim Clemens, you know, from uh, Clemens from Clemson talk at your CEO uh, conference. He talked about culture, culture, culture. What are you seeing there? Uh, you know, in terms of you're not just a finance guy. You like to look at the operating model. You like to look at uh, other things there. Uh, what are you seeing uh, in the way of culture and how that's impacting kind of the banking industry right now? Well, I'm a big believer in culture and every company has a culture, whether they whether they want to have it or not. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, I just got off the phone with uh, Jay Hillebrand, who runs Stockyards Bank, and mm -hmm. uh, they've done a great job of keeping a very distinct community bank culture. And I, that's one of the things that I find very hard is that as you grow in size and you go from $1 billion to $5 billion to $10 billion, once you get over $10 billion, keeping that community bank culture is, really takes a lot of effort to think small. And then that's one of the things that uh, Sam Walton always said, you know, uh, how do you run a, a company the size of, of Walmart? And uh, he would always say, I don't know. I know how to run a store. That's what the, the community bank mentality, if, you, if you're operating a community bank model, then you, you've got to work hard to keep the, that community bank mentality and culture. Yeah, I remember you having Jim Herbert talk of First Republic and some of the relationship manager retention numbers that he has compared to the rest of the industry. So when you're looking at a stock, you're actually underwriting culture as well, aren't you? Trying to. It's, uh, it's hard from afar, particularly when you're dealing with the, the senior people. That's why I do like to do things like, uh, you know, uh, visit uh, call centers or talk to the security people in the headquarters building. Uh, you'd be amazed at, uh, at uh, the stories <laughs> that they can tell you. Well, yeah. you, you've done some mystery shopping, too, over the years. I don't know that you're doing it like you once did, but maybe you could kind of give the cliff note version of what you found as you walk the, the mean streets of Philly in New York. Well, yeah, that uh, the uh, when we do it with products, too. So, for instance, if you looked at my wallet, you'd say, what are you doing with all those credit cards? But I like to see how uh, companies manage credit cards. And, you know, 15 years ago, I defaulted on one uh, to uh, test out their collection practices uh, it took years before they finally had sold it to a firm that was smart enough to uh, to figure out how to collect it. So, but the the branch activities in in recent years, we compare how long does it take to open an account in the branch compared to if I'm sitting in the branch to doing it online. Mm -hmm. And I'm still today I'm amazed that it takes longer to open up an account physically with a customer rep. Then I can do it on a on a cell phone. Yeah, a lot of catch up, and and fo folks are saying, do I invest in all that branch technology, or I just 
shutter some of the branches and, and get a lighter uh, branch light footprint these days. I'm seeing hearing a lot of that in, in budget meetings these days. Yeah, but Steve, what I find interesting, as you say, that people talk about going branch light, but if you look at where the dollars are going, they're still putting a lot into the physical locations that they have. Yeah. And when you consider, you know, you and I talk about what what would you do with a million, million and a half dollars? That's one of those conversations at a board level that becomes really interesting because when you think about the expense and how you're trying to, you know, pull back on certain things, you and I have touched on why every basis point matters, but thinking about your branch network and what can you reconcile so that you can reduce certain expenses and redirect it into new initiatives. I think that is one of those themes that is not going to lose its its luster, you know, going into 2023. I'm I'm curious, you know, Tom, as, as you've talked to people like J.B. Brown at Ally, who you know, talks about being insight driven and not just data rich. He has a model that is very light in physical footprint, really digitally sophisticated, and it takes a lot of effort to make something look effortless. You've got to have a perspective on on this conundrum. Well, it's real interesting right now. In fact, I just looked at some charts in my office about you look at the, you take the the banks that don't have any physical network gone completely branchless and their cost of funds is, you know, at the market rate. Uh, then you take a look at banks like First Republic, which are heavy into the high net worth, uh, people sensitive with, with huge accounts, and they're pretty close to being at market rates. And then you look at the traditional banks uh, whether it be Bank of America, Key Corp, Huntington, and their cost of funds, uh, the the deposit beta is less than 10% right now. So there's a huge dichotomy in the industry. You yeah. better have the asset yields to be able to afford uh, those uh, market rates and the deposits. So companies like a, a Capital One or an Ally, they're in asset classes that uh, can enable them to still enjoy healthy margins. Yeah, that's why I like that metric Moynihan uses at B of A about the direct cost, both cost of funds plus direct operating costs, because it gives you that trade-off between am I am I creating some stickiness and deposit beta versus am I low cost, but I have to pay market. I think that's a great point. And uh, the problem on the outside is we can't calculate that number very easily. Right. So it's, uh, it's not an easy, transparent number. Got to got to get some cornerstone benchmarkers in there to help you do that. <laughs> oh, you're shameless. You're shameless, Steve. Uh, <laughs> sorry, right. sorry. You, you two nice guys are going to recognize that we take our cues uh, for this next track from a Valley of the Sun resident. So uh, Steve alluded to your banking weekly newsletter, which really is a, has become a must read for many across the, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know which one you put this in, but basically you noted in the first six months of the year, corporate earnings have held up pretty well, even as the economy clearly had slowed. Uh, but then I made note, you you said, don't feel too reassured. The pattern of previous recessions is that earnings don't start to fall in earnest until a recession is well underway. So if you were Alice Cooper and you're, you know, had just listened to No More Mr. Nice Guy, can you explain what your thinking is when you wrote that? If you look back to the last uh, 15 years, what you'll see is for the S&P 500 companies, there's a consensus earnings estimate that's driven from each of the making estimates on each of the 500 companies. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year, the average decline is 5%. Uh, And in recessions, the uh, decline accelerates beyond that curve. It takes about three months into the recession. It's interesting that there have been two uh, exceptions to that. One was in 2018 when uh, corporations got tax refunds. 
And one of them was 2021, uh, of course, the economic recovery year. Uh, this year, the pattern was a little different because for the first six months, the earnings went up by 5%. And in the last uh, four months, uh, they've come down by 5%. So uh, I think there'll be a little drifting lower by year end, but the real decline in corporate earnings will take place next year. So, Tom, uh, if we were going to uh, kind of look at the uh, earnings season and what's ahead and, and potential for recession and then go to investing, yeah. I'm thinking about Australian named Bon Scott and ACDC and no stop sign, speed limit, nobody going to slow us down. Are we on the highway to hell? But here's what's interesting about the highway to hell. You like to invest when there's hair around a deal, when there's a franchise that may have been hurt and now it's undervalued. So looking out there when people are afraid of that highway, what are you guys looking at right now? Where do you see uh, there is still a reckoning to come? And where do you see maybe value is starting to creep in? Well, I think value has crept in. Uh, the um, uh, What, you know, from a macro standpoint, what is uh, frustrating is the volatility. Mm -hmm. But volatility increases at the end of a bear market. And so there's several measures that we have of volatility, but it would suggest that six months from now, maybe three months from now, that uh, the market is going to be move out of a bear market and into a bull market. And uh, uh, one of those measures, which I just came across, is that uh, the uh, we've set a record this year with the number of weeks that the market uh, is either up or down by 1% on a Friday or whatever the last day of that yeah. the trading week is. It's we went to a five day trading pattern in 1952, and there's never been another year where we've had more of that volatility on a on a Friday. And uh, there's still eight weeks left in the year, so we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. But I I think uh, when you look at uh, the average market, the average stock in the S and P 500, they traded about 17 times next year's earnings, and the average bank is trading at 10. Right, uh, and uh, that is a, a unusually wide discount to the market. I think bank earnings will hold up much better next year than, to, say, corporate earnings will. So, uh, uh, I think it could be a good year for for bank stocks. Yeah, I think it's interesting with bank stocks that it's not about finding a bank stock that's going to trade at twenty five times earnings. It's about all these really nicely run conservative banks when they're at six to nine just getting back to 11 to 13, what that appreciation looks like with a dividend. That's always the game to me that's really interesting. Right. Oh, Steve, you're talking about these troublemakers, I think. Troublemakers, yeah. Right. The regional community banks, the commercial banks, entrepreneurial, trying to be magnets for talent out there across the country. And uh, But they're they're facing a lot of evolution, but they still confound the experts and, and find ways to create value. Yep, totally. Hey, Tom, this last track, I'm going to uh, give you a few names and see if you can place the artist. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray. Ring a bell? No. Oh, God, that's <laughs> we didn't start the fire by Billy Joel. Oh, okay. Your, we're going to talk to your wife about your music collection. <laughs> um, you know, but we're going to draft off of We Didn't Start the Fire because that's a song I, I bet a bunch of investors in the fintech space <laughs> might take some comfort in hearing as things get sideways with them. You know, Steve and I have talked at length with our fintech team, but I've also talked to Tom over the years about this intersection of banking and technology and really where things get interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Most of those conversations really came back to, you know, themes around insight, experiences, connections. Um, and I want to frame this concept of connectivity that's taking place right now based on something our head of research, Ron Shevlin, just posted on Forbes. He talks about, you know, connectivity as being a primary factor in determining who will win the financial data aggregation battle. It sounds nerdy, but when you think of data aggregation, that's a big thing. That's where like MX is making a big push. It's where Plaid has been sitting. You know, um, you see the movement of people and talent, and it strikes us that, you know, technology continues to transform the business of banking. And I just am curious, you know, whether it's open banking, embedded finance, embedded fintech, banking as a service, these are big themes that have gotten a lot of attention. Like what gets you most jazzed up these days uh, on that intersection of banks and technology? Maybe I'll take a step back and say that uh, 15, 20 years ago, it was... uh, Technology was about products, and you really go. You can go back to the '80s when inter- online banking was introduced, and that was a new product. And then you can fast forward to uh, the deployment of ATMs, and then uh, you had call centers. It was all about products, uh, using technology to offer a better customer service. And I would say, 15 years ago, 2010, and I usually get uh, called in to speak to boards. When that light shines, and so now we're 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 still on this long journey of adjusting our company to deal with the di- digital revolution. Mm-hmm. I like embedded finance, though, and uh, and companies that can that can benefit from that. And uh, we are uh, large owners of some of the banking as a service providers. You know, one thing Nigel uh, Morris talked about at, at your CEO uh, meeting was the uh, the rise of a super fintech. I'm wondering what these valuations and kind of the rationalization going on. Will we see M&A activity, Tom, in, among fintechs, do you think? Yeah. In 2000, after the tech bubble burst, as an investor, I was able to pick up a company like LendingTree that came public at 120 and buy it at three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that there will be some opportunities for public investors to pick up some of these fintechs. You know how much I love uh, the business model of Encino. Right. When Encino came public, it was at an outrageous valuation. I wasn't afraid to tell uh, Pierre, the CEO, that uh, I love the company, but I don't like the the valuation. But uh, I don't want to root against him and his his company's valuation. But I certainly keep paying attention to that, and there may be a time that public investors can pick up. So if I can do it, then I think there will be opportunities for some of the banks to also see that opportunity and uh, and pick up some broken uh, fintechs. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of resumes hit the street. I think for banks too, it's a great opportunity to be thinking about the transformational talent that knows how to connect the fintech world to the traditional banking world. And I think we're going to see more of that activity just because some of those people are are not in a growth mode anymore. They're on the street looking for work, and they, some of them will integrate back into banking, but hopefully change it. Yeah, that's what makes Nigel Morris and Hans Morris so interesting. So they they have the banking experience, uh, and now they're fintech investors. So they I think they see the world from both sides better than most. Yeah. Tom, uh, Al, I know we're out of time, but you had one last kind of bonus question for Tom that we can't uh, can't leave without asking. Well, it's not even a bonus question. This is just a bonus track. It's Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. And that's for your wife, Amy. (laughs) We have to give her some props as one of the highlights of your newsletter. 
know, actually, I will take a moment, Steve, because if we turn the tables on you, Tom, and said, hey, Amy, we're going to let you write a closing paragraph on Tom, as opposed to Tom writing one on Amy, what do you think she would come up with? She'd come up with a big snore and just say <laughs> he's he's a one boring guy, uh, but uh, I, I, I like being with him. <laughs> well, then let's close by thanking Amy Brown for letting Tom Brown from Second Curve get plugged in with us today. He's Steve Williams. I'm Al Dominic. And we'll be back to turn up the mics on the business of banking again real soon. Thanks so much, Tom. Great discussion. Hey, good to be with you.